Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. Where our goal is to make politics more accessible and less intimidating. The show features an interview with an expert in the political field, walking us through the many cues we have about politics, civics, government, and more. By providing civic education in the places we are. On our phones and in the language we speak. And yes, you know, we say like a lot. It's kind of the point. Because politics needed a rebrand. Welcome back to Girl on the Podcast, the very last episode of 2022. Crazy. Crazy. Like, I genuinely could not tell you what happened last January. Couldn't tell you. 12 months ago. Couldn't. It. This year was so dramatic in so many ways. Good, bad, everything in between. Yeah. I just speechless, dare I say, absolutely speechless. I do remember like being like, oh my God, it's a huge election year. And I think that was like our main, the theme of this year, 100%, especially here at Girl in the Gov, which, you know, there's some recap stuff we can talk about a little bit at the end. But before we do, go listen to our top stories episode yesterday. We go over the news that you need to know. So we go over all the spending bill updates, the January 6th panel who officially urged the Department of Justice to take up criminal charges against Donald Trump. That's a big one. Did you think that would happen this year, January 2022? Yeah, I did. I I thought that that there was going to be recommendations for sure. I just like where my questions still are too is like if they're actually going to do anything with it. Like, I yeah. am all for panels and investigations and things like that that bring truths to the surface and yeah. or validate them. But I just always with these, this is where my pessimism always goes, where it's like, okay, but what is actually done with that information? It's great when the information is there and it's provided on a platter. But like this next part is where I'm like. I well, I think my hopefulness is also that like. The Department of Justice is already investigating him on multiple different things. So they're already like working on this. And so it'll be interesting to see like if they do anything with the House panel's info or if they're just like doing their own thing because they have big story we've covered throughout the year too is just the multiple investigations happening against that man, that orange, Literally. orange man. I don't remember if I've ever like dropped this very random, not, it's not even a fun fact, but just obscure fact, I guess we can call it. But I went to elementary school with this kid whose dad worked for Donald Trump. And at the time, The Apprentice was a really big show. Yeah. And so everyone was like obsessed. I'm going to give him a random name. Give, what's rant? Garrett. I don't even know it, Garrett. Okay. okay. Garrett's dad. And it was like, oh my God, Garrett, your dad's so cool. Oh my God. Does he get to like go on set at The Apprentice? Like, does he know Donald Trump? It was one of those things that was so memorable to elementary school and so for then flash forward all these years for him to become president a and b for that to turn into all of this 
mm-hmm. weird. Like, I wonder what like fourth or fifth grade me would have thought if someone told me that. Then. Now we're going way back. We could. I know we're going twenty twenty two. That's crazy. <laughs> we're going all the way back. Yeah. No, it's it's wild. Third story we talked about in top stories was just Biden and the new strategy that he might implement moving into this new Congress with Republicans taking over the House. We might see some more executive orders. So we get into all of that. And then we get into the TikTok bans that are happening and everything around that. So go listen, go listen, go listen. But there is one other story that this we must address immediately (laughs) that is around representative elect george santos from new york i'll read the story and then i know you probably have thoughts on thoughts on thoughts so it's it's like a freaking onion dip it's layered (laughs) (laughs) so on monday representative elect george santos faced a barrage of questions as well as an uncertain future after an article in the new york times revealed that he may have misrepresented key parts of his resume on the campaign trail and so over the course of his campaigns mr santos claimed to have graduated from college in 2010 before working at citigroup and eventually goldman sachs but Officials at Baruch said they could find no record of him having graduated that year, and representatives from Citigroup and Goldman Sachs could not locate records of his employment. And so experts in ethics noted that Mr. Santos' campaign disclosures revealed little about the source of his fortune as well, in particular failing to name any client who paid more than $5,000 to his company which is called the Devolder organization. Such an omission could be problematic if it were to become clear that he had intentionally avoided disclosing his clientele. And Mr. Santos' candidate disclosures show that he paid himself $750,000 annually and earned dividends of more than a million dollars while running for Congress. This, okay, where to even start? Yeah. Where to even start? Starting with the fact that this made it past somehow like the sniff test of everyone this election, which I think shows like how unengaged the New York electorate was this year, which was really seen on election night and also with early voting of low turnout. And I think that a lot of people in New York have like election exhaustion and we yeah. have another election in the city this year for New York City Council. So I think people are really like, oh, my God, another election add in the messed up primaries. I mean, it just I think yeah. New York election season was a disaster not to mention the redistricting of it all. So there's a lot to say about the fact that it was the perfect storm for something to slip through the cracks like this. Mm -hmm. That said, the fact that even, I don't know, a Republican on his end of things wouldn't have been like, oh my God, like you don't know my buddy at Goldman? Oh my God, wait, so you're in like the M&A department at Citigroup? Like that's like, it sounds so obnoxious, but like that's like, what you talk about with like other New Yorkers, everyone's in finance, every fucking bro's in finance. So like the fact that somehow in any networking conversation, no one played the name game or the like, oh, wait, did you close on that deal? Or were you a part of that? No one name gamed him. That's so weird to me. That is like any cocktail thing you go to in the city. Well, anyway. I'm I'm honestly more on the side of like, why didn't the New York Times figure this out during his campaign? Like, I'm kind of looking at it more from a journalistic angle because, yeah, like the electorate, whatever. But it's also like your average voter isn't going to like dig deep into this guy's resume and go like see if he actually, you know, do that investigative journalism. Where's our watchdog journalist out there, you know? Right. And I agree with that. I if I were to take a guess as to where it came from, my guess is that 
with like redistricting in New York and some of these quote unquote surprise Republican wins that had solidly been either Democratic previously or just Democratic losses for the congressional you know caucus from New York. I think the New York Times is like, let's look into this. Let's see what candidates won and why did they win? Why did they resonate with voters that might typically have been moderate Dems? Like what happened there? And I guarantee you it stemmed from that. However, I totally do agree that it is weird that no one seemed to have dug into this more. And then to add to all of this, and from a journalistic standpoint, but also from a party, like I, I genuinely, I know the Republican Party has been horrendous at picking candidates are low low. but again it's just still weird that even from the get-go that no one name gamed him just in new york i think if i were to guess like where the times even got this story started is probably from that word of mouth that it just maybe came too late of like Mm -hmm. they probably were like heard this guy like around the street everyone's like this guy's a fucking fraud he's all everything he said isn't true i worked at citigroup i'd never saw him whatever and then the new york times was like Oh, shit. Okay. Let's look into this. Because it's weird. And then I will say that. So our friend Sky did a interview with him after he was elected. And it's before this news broke. It's Mm -hmm. on political personalities with Sky. It's on her Instagram. I think it's fully coming out sometime in the next week or so or might be already out. Regardless, go check her Instagram. You get the main clip of it. We'll link it. But what's so interesting about this interview is he is smooth like absolutely like i think if you but here's the thing people are like oh donald trump like so authentic like no way that guy's a con man i'm like i hear one word he says and i'm like how do you not think this guy's a con man i it like in a bad one at that which is why it's even more disturbing donald trump's the exception i would disagree with con people are like they're Connie. They know what they're doing. I'm thinking yeah, like, like Fire Festival, Anna Delvey, all the, all those real con. He's giving. I don't even think Delvey. Donald Trump's a real, real fucking con. He's man. just yeah. I mean, but he does. Con- I mean, he cons. He does, a lot of but money he just like, does yeah. it obviously, which is like I feel like he's an anomaly almost. But it's the psychopath versus sociopath syndrome versus situation. First, yeah, totally. Like yeah. let's you know giving us or. or diagnosis on the air here with absolutely no medical degree on either end. But we're we're proud to, you know, just throw this out there. But I just do think that it's a particularly interesting watch because it is he tricked me. He would totally trick me. Yeah. And yeah. I like to think I I, I didn't watch the video. I'll have to go watch it, but everyone else go watch the interview with Sky. I'm curious just to see him him speak. But That is a very interesting story, one that I didn't expect to hit us before the new year. But guess what? We'll keep you guys updated into the new year on what happens with this. From what I'm reading, they don't think anything will happen. The Republicans don't give a fuck about fuck. So they basically could like um, censor him, censor. Oh my God, you guys know what I'm talking about. Censure, censure him or like decide to not allow him on committees but like they're or, like gonna, he could resign but like knowing like he's not like, going to down it unless he like yeah. actually is being threatened with like some real type so, of legal like ramifications or something protects them in a lot of ways I'm so i think it's really going to be a 2024 play because congressional seats are only two years yeah wild story had to address and linking the interview for everyone to go check out yeah. but before we get into this interview we just want to say our thank yous to everyone listening for another amazing year at Girl on the Gut, the podcast. Because this, again, is our last episode of the year. We're going to take 
a little break in between Christmas and the new year. So there'll be no episode next week. We'll be back January. What's that? What's that? First Wednesday of January. What is she? The fourth. Oh, there it I is. Guess, I guess the third for top stories as well. Right. Everyone will be sworn in on the third. So we'll hopefully have some some fresh and hot tea for you guys. But as far as 2022, this is it. This is it. We stopped the red wave. I think that's my like most proud. <laughs> and Girl in the Gov did it. Like, let's be real. <laughs> Annie's just out here taking credit for every young person on this planet. But- it's fine. It's audacious. But when you... Back to our earlier conversation, like when you look back on the year of like, what were we thinking in January 2022? We were like, how do we make this midterm the best it can be, get people to turn out again? And this year it was such a roller coaster as far as like whether it was red wave for the first half and then the summer got hopeful again and then the fall got doomsday again and it was just like such a roller coaster. But the red wave was stopped. And I think that was highlight number one for me. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's definitely a highlight. It's definitely a roller coaster, to say the least. But a part of that roller coaster was some amazing guest interviews, which was super, super exciting. So what's great about these interviews too, guys, is most of them are pretty evergreen. And we designed that very purposefully so that even if, say, for example, a candidate doesn't win their primary, doesn't win their election, you can listen to those interviews time and time again so that you're still getting the details, the behind the scenes, the nitty gritty, the learnings from those interviews, no matter what. It's not like, oh my God, well, that interview was last year and now it's no longer relevant. And that is also part of why we launched Top Stories and pulled it separate from our interview episodes, which I think was a really great accomplishment and new thing for us in 2022 because it allowed us to give more time to the interviews. So that's that total focus. And also you guys get that top stories of the week moment where it's just totally isolated. It doesn't take up, you know, a huge chunk of your week, but you get to jump into some of those top stories on the political scale and get your, you know, political news jumpstart at the beginning of the week. So I think that was a really great idea that we acted on and pulled from, and I'm excited for that to keep going. And we're all all the people out there that maybe just tune into these interview episodes and aren't aware of top stories. Now you know. Yeah. Top Stories Tuesdays, that here to stay, baby. Yes. Yeah, I would also say that for the new year, if there are things you want to see, do let us know. And a way that you can jump into that feedback pipeline is to join the Gov Club, which mm. was formerly known as our brand ambassador program. We rebranded that as well recently, but this year. And we're just excited to continue to grow the Gov Club into 2022 and along with other exciting things with this brand, with this company, and with this mission. So we're going to keep it all going in 2023. But join the, the Gov Club. You can go to girlinthegov.com and learn all about it. We have political networking opportunities and we have just a community of all the political friends all in the friend group just coming together from across the country to continue the conversation. And again, who just, those of you who want to see this brand and this mission of making politics just a little bit easier to understand, continue to expand and move forward. So go join at girlonthegov.com. But- also, to that point, if you filled out an application Keep an eye out for an email. We always email you after setting up a call. So I know that sometimes those might end up in someone's spam spam box or whatever. So make sure you check. There should be an email 
in your inbox from one of us. Yes. Well, that is it for our intro for our last episode of 2022. Again, thank you all for listening all the time. We just really appreciate you. We couldn't be here on our second year, almost second year, past second year, a little bit over second year. We're a little bit over two years. Yeah. And we couldn't be here without you all. So thank you so much. We don't say it enough. So thank you. But we also have an interview for you today. And Samantha has been just itching to introduce our amazing guest. Like, get me the, what is, what is the lotion you put on a bug bite? Cow wine? I don't know. I was going to say Neosporin. Oh, I don't know. That's for cuts. Anyways, speaking of itching, let's get into this episode, into this interview. So you guys might remember if you tuned into Top Stories yesterday, who we were introing, but we have Eric Olson, who's the communications director for Congressman Garamendi from California. We are chatting all about communication strategy, what it looks like to work on the Hill, especially in the communications department for a Congress member, what the challenges are, what are some of the strategies that come out of that, and of course, some fun and ridiculous stories from all ends. So we get into it. And nonetheless, without further ado, let's get into this episode. Here is Eric. Talking about communications today, because you are a communications director for Congressman Garamendi in California. For those that don't know, can you tell everyone what this role is like? How did you get into it? I mean, communications, not exactly for the weak of heart. So we got to hear this journey. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it just kind of like sometimes things just fall into place and I never expected to do this job actually like envision doing a completely different career back when I was in high school and beginning of college. But really like I always had a passion about, you know, politics and I was always interested in journalism and in broadcast media. I kind of got interested in politics back in like 08 during the Obama election. I was pretty inspired by that. So I volunteered throughout high school. I got told to go screw myself by a bunch of people in Ohio for like three months when I was 14. Mm-hmm. And for some reason I came back and kept doing it. And, you know, I kind of, my, my dad was always interested in politics. And he always said like, if I didn't go into what I went into, I would have gone into like government and politics. Yeah. And so that kind of just the, the natural interest I had. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just kind of like feeling connected to my dad in that way drove me to it. And then by beginning my sophomore year of college, I just, saw an ad on our like listserv to go intern for a guy named John Garamendi. I hadn't heard of him. My parents were like, oh my God, we love him. So I was like, sure, I'm going to do it. And then just kind of worked my way up, just started again, getting told unsavory things on the phones by a bunch of people we were calling and then stuck around and and just stayed with the organization. And yeah, here I am like, like eight years later, still with him. That's awesome. Okay, so that's why you were able to do communications because you have been yelled at since day one. <laughs> Yeah, you just yeah, I and I was like a pretty sensitive dude growing up, but like let me tell you, that gave you some thick skin. Then like you go canvas team, you get the door slammed in your face. It's oh, like yeah. nothing can face you. No, yeah, like door knocking, phone banking, like it's all great practice for that. Gets the the skin very thick indeed. Well, can you kind of tell us and paint the picture of like what really a day in the life of a communications director on the hill? is like what what does that look like it sounds crazy (laughs) i would say the typical day is an atypical day it's like a reverse groundhog day like everything looks different every day i start my days like 8 a.m i create like a general outline like a b and c 
list priorities that I want to get done. And by like 9.05, it's changed like six times. You kind of just adjust to the needs of, um, you know, your boss. Maybe the caucus has something announced. Maybe there's unexpected bit of news that, you know, you, you need to communicate, et cetera. But I'd say like the general tasks that I am working on, I pitch my boss for local and national media every day draft all of our social media content, kind of think through the narratives we want to push and kind of issue and message priorities and what framing tools we want to use. We're crafting, you know, press releases and thinking of like press events, a newsletter program, meeting with stakeholder groups, trying to get kind of outside support for our legislation, talking points for the interviews I pitch him for, take photos of all of his events, create mailers, everything. And then I also manage a staff of, of three people. So you're you're rolling with the punches, but you're trying to be proactive as possible and make sure that the long-term priorities that your boss might have are are being achieved and that you're executing the the communications plan you presented to, to him or her earlier in the year. The art of the pivot, I really feel like <laughs> is so core to that. But I was going to ask if you had a team below you or not because the amount of communications that has to happen on a daily basis just seems like a never-ending, yeah, never-ending mountain to climb. So I was so curious about how that operates and like, does each person on the team have like a specific hat that they wear or is it sort of like you where it's like, okay, everyone is going to wear 50 million different hats today. We try to make, yeah, I try to make it a little bit more like focused for the folks below me. Like I, you know, the folks that I'm managing, I want to make sure, first of all, I want to know what their professional goals are. You know, I want to know what they want to do long-term. Like if they don't care at all about social media, I don't want to make them write a thousand tweets a day. But generally there's just like large kind of time sucks, like like the social media content. In our newsletter program, we have like a very micro-targeted, like very specific newsletter and a strategic plan that we execute. So one one person kind of handles a lot of the incoming messages our office gets from constituents and then kind of preemptively sends them newsletters. They, they analyze all the data related to that. And then the other person is kind of like a backup helps with all the social media content and analyzing that and creating a lot of our like paid social media advertisements and everything. Yeah. Well, that raises a question for me too, because I think a lot of people probably are always curious, like, who is writing those tweets? Who's behind these tweets? Who's behind the social media? And I'm curious to hear from your side of things. And this might even vary per representative and per team, but like, how involved are these reps in or just elected officials in general. I mean, even going up to President Biden, like how involved are they in some of that communications of like putting that, the tweets out ASAP, like when people look to those, can people be like, oh, that's actually, you know, Joe Biden speaking or is it a team? Like, I think everyone's always curious about that. And it's interesting to see and hear about the behind the scenes of what goes into the social media of it all. Sure, absolutely. So it varies. It really does vary depending on who the elected official is. Someone like Chris Murphy, like he is writing all those tweets himself. And then you have some members that don't, you know, don't write any of the the outgoing like social media press releases, but they do review everything. Some of my colleagues and counterparts have to run every single tweet by their member of Congress before they can send it out. Same with Facebook, Twitter, everything. And then some members, I think if you've been with the office for a long time, and you establish like an inherent kind of trust and good working relationship with 
with your boss, then I think a lot of times you're allowed to just kind of roll with it and kind of just know what your boss wants to, to get across, have confidence that you understand what their voice is and just send out like tweets and social media stuff that way. I've never heard of an office sending out a press release without running it by their boss first though. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you can kind of just do stuff on your own on, on Twitter, but definitely it's like a, a mass communication through traditional like mass media and press. The, the yeah. members always have a say to, in, in what that looks like in the final product. Totally. Interesting because now I know what the governor of Kentucky must spend most of his time doing because there is not an office on the face of this earth that sends more press releases out than the governor's office of Kentucky. I swear to God, like yeah. one after the next. I know it's not national, but I always am in awe. Like every time I get a little like inboxing, I'm like another one. Like that TikTok <laughs> sound goes through my head. So I think he he must. I mean, who knows how it goes at sort of the statewide office level, but. I have a feeling it's pretty, probably pretty similar, which is interesting. But anyways, moving on to thinking about media and politics and its intersection and how that all operates. And we want to get into that by diving into our stupid question segment by, you know, love stupid questions. There are so many out there, you know, we've got, you know, one per minute, one per, you know, penny out there, but regardless, we want to talk about how media and democracy inter, you know, come together and what what does that look like you know what is the importance of media in protecting democracy what does that sort of look like yeah well i think the press is the fourth branch of government and i think the role of media and democracy is to preserve a democracy it's the fulcrum to a healthy functioning society and, and democratic government you know i think elected officials have a responsibility to maintain that the first amendment rights and never impede it just as the media and journalists have a responsibility to kind of elucidate and clarify very complex issues that aren't necessarily intuitive to people in a way that is both objective and, and easily understood because that's how folks make informed decisions you know we're not going to have a functioning government if people aren't aren't voting from an informed perspective and we see that being a huge inflection point right now in our government. And you know, I think it's it's imperative that media provoke public debate, but also like spur greater like public participation in the democratic process. It's it's a lofty task, but you know, mm-hmm. any any good functioning democracy, I think that's what their press looks like. Totally. Do just like electeds and reps have these comms teams and this is like a central team just for kind of these elected officials? Or do we see comms teams being a priority in political organizations, nonprofits, like government agencies too? Like what does that look like kind of across the political entity spectrum? Sure. Yeah. All, you know, like all political organizations, nonprofits also have communications teams and that's a great career as well. Like Moms Man Gun Action, Sierra Club, they all have comms teams. It's a little different than Capitol Hill Communications. I think those folks spend a lot more time like writing fundraising emails and pitches, particularly in like the nonprofit world. However, there is some parity and overlap. We work with the communications teams of nonprofit and political organizations all the time that endorse our legislation. And we'll we'll put together press packets and lobbying packets to help them if they have like an active government affairs team meet with other members of Congress and explain to them why our bill is important to their district as well. So, you know, executive agencies, nonprofits, political organizations all have communications teams and they're great careers as well. A lot of friends that do that and they love what they do. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. So in terms of some of these other terms for someone that's not as in the know with communications, communications teams, what is a press briefing? Sure. Yeah, it's a good question. So it's an event typically like in-person or virtual event where like notable organizations or individuals invite members of the press to come listen to basically a presentation. And I think you typically go that route when the information you're conveying is too much to put in a press release. Like someone's going to fall asleep reading a 10 page press release. Like you need to do an event. And then also I think it's useful to do that if there's kind of an emotional appeal to your message, to your issue that you can convey that way. So for instance, we just did a press event like a month ago with IU, the labor union on an effort that we're undertaking to help pay in-home supportive services workers, like folks that work in uh, elderly homes and providing like caregiving services. They got rocked by the pandemic and they're not making enough money. So, you know, I could have put out a press release saying we need to pay these people more, but it was a lot more I think valuable to have some TV cameras there, our own cameras there, and have mm-hmm. actual caregivers share their story mm-hmm. and how hard they've been hit by the pandemic and the lack of wage growth. I think that just kind of elicits more of an empathetic like response from from viewership. Whereas if I just put their quote on on a on a press release, it wouldn't have the same effect to people. Right. Totally. It's interesting to hear like the kind of emotional spectrum that comes out and sometimes press briefings, but press releases are also really important to communicate like what's getting done, what the constituents need to know, what what's coming out. Like, can you kind of explain the real importance of press releases as well and its role in communications? Yeah. So obviously press briefings are great, but you can't have like 15 reporters come to your office every day, right? So you need to write press releases and they're they're also super important. A press release is like an official statement, you know, from the member of Congress or from an organization that specifically just goes to the media for the purposes like of informing the public of an announcement or an action they're they're taking. So you're providing like primary source information. So it's assumed that what you're providing is objectively true and accurate. And if it's not that's a huge no-no and a lot of the outlets are going to get mad at you. So it's very important to, you know, cross your T's out your eyes and be reporting factual information. But it's it's an official statement, it's an official announcement and you're trying to get, you know, we call it the third-party endorsement, you're trying to get local news, a trusted source of information with a mass audience to convey information you want to get out to your constituents that's relevant to them. So ev- everyone does it and it can be a competitive, you know, it's a competitive kind of thing on the Hill, especially when you have members writing press releases for the same topic. So, you know, we always get creative in terms of how to catch reporters' eyes and, and make sure that ours get covered over, you know, other similar ones that might be going out from other offices. Yeah. Wait, so our press releases, because I, I've gotten a lot of press releases from my rep, like a constituent written press release from my rep, but I But I also know like they are also for reporters to then they kind of write up stories for the electorate or for citizens to then, you know, consume. Are there are those different different buckets? Yeah. So the way most offices do it, we do it. And I think a lot of others are, you know, we'll write a more technical, technically worded kind of a little bit more kind of in the weeds kind of thing, a press release for the media. And then we'll avail ourselves to, you know, I, I put my number at the top of every press release I send to the media so they can just call me directly if they have questions. And then we have a newsletter program where we basically take that same information and just make it a little bit more digestible and a little bit more succinct that we then send to all of our constituents. Mm-hmm. Um, 
through a newsletter program. So you're conveying the same information, but just a little bit differently. Different the, language. The, the voice sounds a little bit different in it. Totally. Uh, the phone number thing just brought me back to my PR days and sending out a press release and them copying it exactly from my email and including like my message, like my note that it was attached with. And then they published the article and the article was literally like, like they just copy and paste it and didn't even realize. And then I got like a lot of emails from that <laughs> accidentally posted article. So anyways, PTSD, it's, I just I, got. <laughs> I had the exact same thing happen when someone, I don't know how this happened, but I sent out a release and somehow it got forwarded to Breitbart and Breitbart Stop. like ran oh. it the same thing. Like my cell phone number is my work phone, but I was like, shit, like I'm going to yeah. get so much hate mail for the next two weeks. And and I did. Yeah. I was going to say immediately <laughs> call your like phone provider and change your phone number. Like, yeah. It was like, John Gary many fights for healthcare for everyone. And everyone's like, screw you, man. Yeah. Fuck that guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, seriously. That's hilarious. I love it. Oh my God. Well, moving forward, we want to continue this conversation into communications role in democracy and in kind of public service as a whole. And I had a question about, again, back to this, like, why it's so important and how effective would you say across the board, like, communications teams are in the civic world? Like, again, it's it's so different because, like, there's government agencies and then there's electeds. We had a guest on back in the day. This was, like, one of our first few episodes. So I, me and Sam are always, like, talking about don't listen to our first ones because they're not good. But our guest was amazing. And we talked about veterans affairs and, like, that whole agency and how a lot of times, like, there are really incredible resources for veterans in this country. But, like, the communications is off. Therefore, like, a lot of veterans do not receive their benefits. Like, that was something I was super curious about because that really comes down to, like, a communication issue and like whether it's you know the VA or you know an actual rep overall would you say there is a lot of improvement that needs to happen in order for people to like really understand what's going on in the government but also kind of like what the government can provide them that makes sense it might have been a really loaded question but that no it's a really important question and you know I think the premise of it is is accurate I think there's a lot that we do that people just simply are unaware of. There's a lot of resources at everyone's disposal. Your example is a terrific one. I feel like sometimes we get kind of stuck in this cycle of we pass a bill, it gets signed into law, we send out a press release, we do a single Facebook post, and then we're like, mm -hmm. that's it. Done. Yeah. And if you didn't happen to stumble upon that on your local news that day, or see our Facebook post about it, or read our newsletter about it, then you'll never know about it. I think a lot of offices, kind of, because we work on so many things, folks don't understand that repetition is key. Mm -hmm. And also I think there's still a lagging kind of like embrace for new media in Congress and in government. And I think part of that is just a lot of the people in government, it's not as intuitive as it is to, you know, to us. And there's, you know, I have a lot of friends who bosses are like, if you can't quantify specifically how many people are going to read this, how many people are going to see this, then I'm not interested in it. I need that empirical evidence. And so, yeah. but you know, it's it's something that in the last four years I've seen members kind of become aware of and prioritize a little bit more. So that's been encouraging. I also think there's a huge thing that a huge discussion that needs to happen on Capitol Hill in our federal government. And that's 
one of the most important tools for being an effective communicator is listening. Yeah. And I think a lot of people just assume, you know, we put out these dictums, we put out these announcements, and it's a one-sided conversation. Mm-hmm. But if you look at who I think is the most effective communicator I've seen, I believe Barack Obama, I believe is probably the most effective communicator I've ever studied. And I have a lot of friends that worked for him and some friends that were in the Oval Office with him frequently. And I asked them, like, when he takes meetings in the Oval that he asks for, how much talking does he do? And they say, almost none. And the only time he talks is to ask questions. And he listens. And in turn, that helps him empathize and understand what people need. Yeah. And that informs the kind of communications and priorities he has. And I think it, it, it helps him connect with people in a way that is unfortunately very rare throughout, throughout government society right now, I think. Yeah. yeah. I think it's interesting, interesting too, to like the feedback loop, because one of the things that I feel like our generation has really struggled with is the fact that pretty much the only, the, the two big ways to communicate with a representative is a town hall or a, you know, calling your rep. So two things, one millennials and Gen Z's hate picking up a phone and are also scared to make phone calls with that in one, one bucket. But then a town hall, for example, has two issues. One, people usually don't know about them because they're not posted on social media. And then two, in addition to that, like everyone's working 5 million jobs and it's like, when on earth are you actually able to attend a town hall? Like that's just not really usually realistic for people, whether it's jobs, family, whatever it is. And so I feel like part of that communications change and evolution has to be like finding more places where people can ask questions, can provide feedback and like Yes, we can email our reps, but making that in these offices maybe like more of a priority that like that feedback should be counted. It shouldn't be discounted like it often is, and only the phone calls kind of counted. Like it just feels like that end of it hasn't caught up as well. And I'm curious, like if you've seen anything, heard anything where maybe there's, you know, waves of change on the communications ends or even with the reps where it's like, okay, like we need to figure out new ways for us to get feedback because like. I would imagine, and this is definitely like, obviously I don't have, you know, access to this data, but I would imagine that it's the same people making calls or the same people like in Parks and Rec that are literally showing up to these town halls. And like, after the 10th time, it's like, you get it. It's like the same 10 people making the same comment. So I'm just sort of curious if like, you've seen any change in terms of, or interest, you know, amongst reps about, you know, how they get feedback and, you know, info from their community members and constituents. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Yeah, so I, we have a lot of, to your point, we have a lot of like, we call them frequent flyers, people that call like <laughs> 10 times a day. Yep. And we love them and we appreciate them, but obviously they're just one voice. And a lot of people, you know, don't know how to contact the representative. And to your point as well, like they don't want to pick up the phone and call. I think there is a discussion that's really ongoing with that. You've seen the introduction of text banking, a lot of virtual town halls that are like Facebook, Instagram, live and everything. And those are all great, but they don't solve the. They're not a panacea. They don't solve the problem. And so I think there is like an ongoing discussion, particularly, you know, as we're winding down this Congress, we have time to kind of reflect. And I think one of the discussions that needs to happen is who are your effective emissaries, right? Who are the people that you have representing your office that can go out in the community and be a liaison for you? Because, you know, a member of Congress is one person, but if you have a district team that is six, seven, eight people, and they hopefully are kind of like a thought leader and someone that has good connections in the district, they can go out and kind of spread information and and resources that are available and have that discussion when the member isn't able to be there. That's one part of it. Another part of it is using new media more effectively. 
and yeah. more creatively. And I also think authenticity really matters. I think if you can communicate with people on their terms and on their level, kind of in a, in a forum that is more familiar to them than a telephone town hall or an in-person town hall at 3 p.m. on a Tuesday, yeah. then you're going to get more engagement. And I think people, you see a lot of new members of Congress doing this. And I think they're just kind of the tip of the iceberg more going to realize that through the use of new media and other digital forms that you can connect. You just have to connect with people with where they are. That's just mm-hmm. the end of it. You know, that's what you have to do. And I think hopefully next Congress, we see a lot more of that. Yeah, totally. I had a question about, I was thinking just about like communications and how it's prioritized. And would you say that before an election, communications is, I guess, a higher priority for some teams versus when you're farther away from an election? Like, how does that kind of play in in the electoral space with like the work you guys do? Are they like, okay, now we have to like, do a lot of people kind of make up for lost time in a way if they like weren't as effective with their communications, like leading up to an election? It's like, oh shit, elections here. Let's push some stuff out. How does that, how does that play out usually? Yeah, I think it depends on the office. I mean, so my boss puts a premium on communications and we communicate pretty much the same volume year round. And I think, you know, I'm grateful for that. I think that's the way it needs to be. A hundred percent. There's some members, particularly in way safer seats that are like, oh shit, like I haven't sent a tweet out in like five days. Should probably do that. Or like I I need to have some events. And yeah, there's kind of making up for lost time. Um, That's definitely a dynamic that plays out in some cases. However, I wouldn't say it's the norm. I think most members do a very good job of prioritizing communications year round. Because they understand that you know, it's kind of the old adage or the axiom, like if if a tr- if a tree falls in the woods, is anyone here? Like if we pass legislation mm-hmm. and no, and we don't talk about it, it just happens in a vacuum. So I think there's there is a premium put on communications that is correct. I think. Yeah. Wait, sorry. I have another question, really quick. Do you also think there's a certain party that does that does communications better than the other? Like who pushes out their messaging better? And who, like, when policy is passed or when they do achieve things, like, do you think a certain party does it better as far as, like, getting that message out and getting their their base, like, on board? Yeah, I think, I, I think the, you know, obviously there's more than two parties, but for the sake of this, I'm just going to talk about Republicans and Democrats. And yeah. I think the... The GOP is incredibly disciplined with their message. Message discipline is at yeah. you know 100% with them. You saw it yesterday, you know, yesterday they all were talking about Hunter Biden's laptop, every single one of them. We're investigating this, this is going to be our number one priority and no one really deviated from that. Whereas, you know, I think Democrats we work on typically I think we work on a broader array of issues and we have more to communicate and we also have typically a broader constituency, not always, but I think the, the folks that we represent, the needs and interests we represent tend to be very far flung. And therefore you see a lot of different kind of tangents that certain members will go on. And that's not bad, but there are some uniform messages that in the past we haven't really, that we've needed to reinforce that we haven't as a party. However, I do think this last election in this last year did a very good job of communicating our pro-choice message and um I think we we could have done a little bit more on 
the work that we were doing to support the economy, things like the Inflation Reduction Act, I think that kind of fell flat at a certain point. But I did see a lot of members prioritizing that every day. And I, I think it comes down to message discipline. You kind of give the edge to Republicans on that one, but Democrats are catching up. And we have a lot of good things to communicate, I believe, over the last, you know, yeah, and, and it probably also yeah. depends on like who's in power and who's able to pass, you know, their priorities. And probably when you're not in power, you're kind of on the defense of like attacking. Is that kind of like in your your communications? It's like, well, we haven't been able to really pass much because we're not in power. So we are now just trying to criticize Is that. Does the message messaging kind of shift in that way, too? Yeah, I mean, when when Trump was in office, I just open, right? I disagree, send. Kind of thing, right? like, it's like very easy to disagree, just say that. But yeah, I mean, right now we're, we're communicating, like, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure law, these are highly, highly like complex things that right. you need to dilute down to a tweet. And there's so many different issues covered in them and facets that you can't get, you know, the, the entire caucus is not going to agree what the number one priority is, which is fine because the needs of the districts vary. I think so long as you're communicating, you know, the issue, the topic, the bill, and you're doing so in a way that, you know, reaches a broad audience to get some positive engagement, you're doing it right. And I saw that when the infrastructure law came out, we did that pretty well. Inflation Reduction Act fell up against a couple of other big national stories. So I don't think we necessarily seize that opportunity from a communications perspective as well as we could have. The good news is most of its implementation is going to be done this year. And so there's going to be a ton of opportunities to continue talking about it in 2023 and 2024. And I think that's what we'll do as a party. Mm -hmm. Totally. I was going to say some of the posts that I've seen that I feel like have been like the most helpful and also just like best received, especially like our generation are like the ones that are breaking down what's in in the act itself because there's so much and people are like, okay, there's stuff for climate, but like what's in it for climate? And then the posts that actually have like a few of those bullet points, so, so helpful. So I'm hoping like we'll see more and more of that happen as it gets implemented, like maybe step-by-step, like these are the things that are now, you know, at the finish line today and et cetera. But I also will say with the Hunter Biden thing, I did see like Nancy Mace like posted something. I think it like popped in the algorithm earlier today. And I was like, this is really what we're going with? Like right after the election, like Hunter Biden. And then I saw all the articles and I was like, wow, okay, well, we're unified. So this is a cult. So <laughs> that's that's how I felt. Because I feel like if you're that unified, maybe this is definitely an opine on this, but I just feel like that's culty, like no question. So I feel like the Democrats do a better job because they're just not a cult. <laughs> yeah, we, we have a very broad, yeah, we have a really broad you know, caucus. It's, yeah. you know, our strength, as Speaker Pelosi says, our strength is in our diversity and we have diverse ideas and priorities. And that's a good thing. So, you know, and I think, I think Democrats are traditionally kind of criticized for not, for, you know, for doing the work, but not communicating it well. And I just, I, I really think we're at this inflection point where, We've heard the criticisms and we're starting to do it proactively and effectively. And you know, I think a lot of people were like, why are we in the closing arguments of this midterm election? Why are we talking so much about democracy? That's not a winning issue. It was a winning issue. So I think the mm-hmm. folks at the helm know what they're doing. And I think you're going to see a lot of diverse ideas continue to come from the caucus and the party, but also us maintain a good message discipline on 
issues that everyone should care about. Totally. Especially abortion. I feel like that was like the number one one. And when people were criticizing that, I was like, guys, you're off. Like the people pushing out that message have got it right. Like, let's chill. Yeah. Like abortion is an economic issue. Like, okay. Like they're connected. Let's put the pieces of the puzzle together, not separate them out. But yeah. yeah. And to your point, explaining that too, is like people, yeah. Like people want to know the details now. Totally. Really mm-hmm. Yeah, it's super interesting too, just this election, how that all played out of how vastly different their results were to the communications around leading up to the election, just how opposite they were indeed. But moving on to, we kind of want to talk about like traditional versus new media and how that's become starting to shift within specifically like federal politics too. I think we're always kind of talking about how we feel like at least more kind of like establishment, maybe even older reps tend to maybe prioritize more traditional media. Is there something you've seen of kind of what comms teams usually prioritize for the rep as far as like different media opportunities? Yeah. um, Traditionally, it has been traditional media, right? Like that's, that's what everyone's kind of competing for. You're talking, you know, your newspapers, your radio, television. One is competing for that primetime MSNBC slot, it seems. Yeah. But some of the new thought leaders of our party are the people that you know, were early adapters of, of new media. And I also think that, again, you know, to talk about the midterms again, we saw last week that Gen Z saved the Democratic Party. If you remove the Gen Z vote, it would have been potentially a huge red wave. And I think members, I I can tell you now that members are being briefed on that. They're aware of all the data and information. Um, And those who didn't understand the value of new media, for whatever reason, they can't quantify the audience as well. They, you know, how many people it's reaching, they don't necessarily understand the medium. I think they're going to have a wake-up call and realize that they need to adapt and prioritize this because a huge part of you know what was the base for their last election and for this party right now is on there. You know, you need mm. you need to start a TikTok, you need to come up with creative, eye-catching social media strategies and and you know also hop on podcasts like this. Honestly, like this is you need to meet people where they are. And mm-hmm. increasingly people are not watching or six o'clock news, at least the younger generation tends to not do that. So new media has, has, there's been like a frustrating lag of adopting it. I think in Congress that I truly believe is going to start changing here in the next, the next like six months. Interesting. Yeah. I'm also curious in terms of like selecting media, like say, for example, like, I don't know, a, a big bill is passed. You send out a press release to the masses. You do a big blast and you get, you know, tons of opportunities back or even before you send out the press release you're getting a lot of inbound how do you decide like which are yes and which are no like what's the vetting process look like in the political space for that type of stuff yeah i mean i want to know the outlet i want to know the i want to consider the outlet who the host or reporter is the topic and the potential reach and effect of the interview it's not like there are a couple of outlets that i just you know don't want to put my boss on for, for reasons, but there are some that will go on depending who the host is, the topic is some that will just always say yes to, but it, you know, we just consider the context for it really to give kind of an example. Like we, my boss is really big on 
going on Fox News all the time during the Trump years to kind of present our side of the story. And so it's not as, it's not cut and dry. Like if they wanted to talk about something just, you know, so like conspiratorial, we're not going to talk, like, I'm going to consider that probably recommend it. No, but you know, if they wanted to talk about the infrastructure law that we just passed, you know, we're going to be open to that. So yeah, I would say those general, like four things are the criteria that I use. And I think a lot of other offices use to decide yes or no recommendation. What happens if like, okay, so say your boss goes on a show and you like, you vetted it and you're like, okay, this is like what we think is going to happen. This is kind of like the messaging that's going to happen. What happens if essentially it's a shit show? (laughs) What is the the remedy? (laughs) We've had, this doesn't happen often, but I've had one interview where they asked us to talk about one topic and then they just completely lied and made it like a hit piece. Fortunately, my boss understands that's not my fault. He understands that that wasn't me and he's very understanding. You know, I think if something like that happens, people deal with it differently. But if you kind of want, if you want to consider that like a crisis communications kind of thing, the number one thing is to always preempt any effects. So if, if it's a shit show and something doesn't go right and you're baited and switch, then you should hop on and, and make an official statement responding to it. The person that kind of takes the first bite at that apple in that context is the person that's going to control the narrative around it and shape it. So, you know, if something like that happens, we're not going to shy away from it. We're going to, we're going to elucidate kind of what happened in the context to it. We're going to hopefully control, you know, the, the ensuing discussion that happens after something like that. Yeah. That's so interesting. And as far as like this vetting process that you do is is that kind of a standard kind of vetting process that most offices take on? And like, is there a set of rules that's kind of pretty standard across the board on the Hill? Or like, is it again, very per team and especially given the fact in this day and age that we're living in where there's Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Lauren Boberts of the world, like they're probably taking media opportunities that you would never even go near. So like, how is that kind of shifting in comms teams kind of across, across the Hill? Like, there's kind of now this acceptance among some reps of misinformation and like continuing to spread it. Like how, what have you seen? Yeah. In the past, I mean, so I think there's like a pretty uniform set of kind of criteria that offices use, but the the way they use it is different. What are your goals and how can the host reporter outlet topic help, you know, achieve, you know, the goals that you might have. It all goes back to your communications plans and the things you want to prioritize and the messages you want to convey. So everyone uses that criteria pretty much, but that leads some members to go on OAN and Newsmax 10 times a week. And that leads others to go to MSNBC. That leads folks to just go to their local papers. And that leads some folks to do other things. I would say back, you know, right after January 6th, and right after you know that that tragedy, I think the focus was, and even before it, I think you know you had all these conspiracy theories just fomenting online. And I think the initial reaction for a lot of folks on the voice of what I believe to be reason was, "We're this is fringe, this is radical, this is not a consensus. We're ignoring this." And now, I think at post-January 6th, we realize that when assessing opportunities and opportunities become available to correct the record and to insert facts in a, you know, in, into a discussion, into a national discussion, 
people are going to do that. Whereas, you know, that doesn't mean, you know, a bunch of members are going to go on Newsmax or OAN. But I think that means like we're going to monitor the comment section on our social media closer. And instead of just ignoring those comments with misinformation about vaccines and voting, we're going to respond to it and we're going to fact check it and we're going to make sure that, you know, misinformation doesn't spread. And I think there's, there's more opportunities out there to use new and traditional media to combat misinformation. And I think that that wasn't necessarily a huge priority for members in the past, but post January 6th, that's like, if, if there's an opportunity to combat misinformation through media op, then it's going to become more of a priority. I don't know if that makes sense or if that's clear, but it's kind of where I think everyone's heads are at. Totally. What a wild landscape, aka communications, the political fields. I feel like ever evolving, but for those that are seeing this evolution and are excited about politics and media and how that, you know, comes together and are like thinking, oh, you know, maybe I like a career in that field. What would you recommend to them in terms of getting into political communications, whether it's at an organization with a rep, you know, anything of that sort, like anything you also like sort of wish you knew going into the field? Yeah. First thing I would say is study history and economics. If you want to particularly do government communications, History repeats itself all the time. And it's just, even if you're not using that for external messages, it's very important, I believe, to have an understanding of at least US history. And also, if you're going to work on policy communications and on Capitol Hill or an agency, just understanding basic economics. It doesn't need to be complex, but like an Econ 101 is important to the work that we do here. I'd also say, coming out of college, I wish I knew that academic writing is not political writing. I had to completely retool my writing style coming out of college. And I'd also say, take, you know, take initiative. I mean, I, I truly believe like any of your listeners can do anything. I don't have any gifts or abilities that they don't possess. I just believe in yourself, study the industry, move the speed of opportunity and study people that have done this successfully before you. If you want to know how to run or work on an effective political campaign, go study, go read one of the many books that have been written about the Obama for America 2008 campaign. That was probably the most successful and influential ground games and political strategies in modern American history. So study that and study how certain you know, government initiatives and policy proposals have been effectively communicated to the public. There's books on that as well. And then I would also say, just get involved early, volunteer on a campaign. If you're in high school, just starting out college, like you can make calls. They love to have you and just get familiar with that process as, as early as possible. And yeah, just take initiative while you're on the campaigns and, and believe in yourself. I love that. And also develop thick skin when you get yelled out. Now, exactly. You know? Also understand that's a political that, you know, need, political career need overall. Thanks, yeah. yeah, you didn't ruin their day. You probably just made it a little bit worse in that moment, but that's okay. <laughs> You're still doing a good service. Exactly. Totally. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I think this is such an interesting conversation and one that kind of drives the work we do too. So it was super informative and I hope everyone too, if you're interested in the comms world, this was helpful, but thank you so much for coming on. Thank you both for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks. 
Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.